my wife and I just moved down to Charlotte, uh, a big reason that we moved here was because we were living in Washington, D.C., and it's not an area that's really known for having great public schools. My wife and I are both public school products. We're very proud of that. And we wanted to be a little bit closer to family, and we wanted to go find a place where public education uh, was something that you could count on to provide a good quality education. But, um, and that's not a but saying that we don't, a quality education is a very difficult thing to quantify. It's a very tricky issue, and I'm, you're going to have to, forgive me here, it's the only time I'm going to stand behind the podium. I tend not to like these, um, but I do have some notes that I'm going to read off and just a few stats that we're going to have up on the dreaded PowerPoint. So for our panelists, if you want to scoot over to, to see it, you're more than welcome to. But <clears throat> um, the state of public education is also a microcosm of our society. It represents race. It represents ethnicity. It represents socioeconomic boundaries. It represents our priorities in how we want our, say, our tax dollars to be used and really what we're going to do for future generations. And it's a very, very difficult thing to ask. Um, it's a very, very difficult thing to answer. But these four people were kind enough to join us to try to get to the bottom of what works and what doesn't when it comes to education. And I'm actually going to start closest to me here. Um, Eric, if you don't mind raising your hand. This is Eric Gukan. He is a senior education advisor to Governor Pat McCrory. Previously, Eric was an executive with New Leaders, a Charlotte-based nonprofit educational leadership policy group. And he also led Teach for America and brought it to North Carolina. Um, he's also taught in public schools, I believe this is correct, in North Carolina and in New York. Great. That's correct. All right, Eric, thanks very much for being with us. Great to be here. Next to him is Torian Dooley, if you could raise your hand. Now, Torian is a second grade teacher at David Cox Road Elementary. She is a CMS uh, teacher. She is now in her 12th year of teaching. I have a three and a half year old. I don't know how somebody survives for 12 <laughs> plus years um, with small kids, but thank you for doing that. Miss <laughs> um, Dooley was also uh, chosen as the 2014 Yale National Fellow, her second time in that capacity with the Yale Initiative designed to strengthen teaching in public schools, and she's also a fellow with the Charlotte Teachers Institute. And then I'll be sitting in the middle once I abandon the podium, which I promise will be soon. Next to me, and uh, if you, Tiffany, if you wouldn't mind raising your hand, that is Tiffany Flowers. She is the Executive Director of the KIPP School. It's a charter school that currently enrolls 380 students in grades five through eight. The school opened in 2007 and is based on the national knowledge is power education model. Ms. Flowers has been a classroom teacher in KIPP schools in Gaston, North Carolina, and in Houston, and was accepted to the KIPP Principal Prep Program. Thank you also for coming. And I'm willing to bet most people in this room know the person that's farthest down. <laughs> this is, of course, our superintendent. This is Dr. Heath Morrison. Uh, before being uh, superintendent of Charlotte Me Mecklenburg Schools. He came to CMS in July of 2012, is that right? That so you're great. not that much ahead of me. No, me. Um, uh, and I'm going to try to pronounce this right. You actually came from the Washoe County School District in Reno? Yes. I'm a Mountain West guy, so I'm glad I didn't embarrass myself by saying that wrong. Uh, previous positions included community superintendent and principal with, schools, uh, with school districts in Maryland. In 2012, Dr. Morrison was named National Superintendent of the Year by the American Association of School Administrators. Now, if we could give our panel a round of applause for joining us tonight. All right, so now I can finally somewhat abandon my podium. Um, and we will get to your questions here very shortly. Um, but the first thing I wanted to try to do, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the PowerPoint, but we've already met everybody. 
Um, when it comes to kind of rating a public education, when it comes to trying to see what works and what doesn't and who's doing it right and who's not, this is the era of big data. This is the era of analytics. There should be something simple as an you know, algorithm that should tell us all exactly what we're doing right and doing wrong. It's not necessarily the case, but people are definitely trying. So let's take a look at North Carolina overall. The Annie Casey Foundation, who of course does a lot of work in education, ranks North Carolina 28th overall in terms of uh, public education. That's squarely in the middle of the pack. Now, Wallet Hub. I'm going to explain to you why I put this up here, because none of us would go necessarily to Wallet Hub to understand exactly why our systems are working or aren't. They rank us 37. And I love this stat for a simple reason. They went through Annie Casey's numbers, US News and World Report. They went through the Department of Education and a number of other, uh, the US Census Bureau, to try to come up with their own lists. And what they found is that, according to their numbers, although there are other numbers, that we're in the bottom, you know, the, the bottom five when it comes to spending per student in each classroom, in classroom spending. Um, where they actually had us at 47th, but in their own list, they show Texas as spending even less than North Carolina, but their school system was ranked 13th. And to show you the flip side of that argument, Washington, D.C., again, where my wife and I just moved from, they, uh, they spent the 14th highest per student in a classroom. They ranked 51st. So it's not as simple as just throwing money around. We have to figure out what works and what doesn't. So how do we rank nationwide in some more specific kind of things? Well, um, is everybody here familiar with the NAEP? Okay, it's a good, solid national benchmark in exactly how things are going. So our fourth graders right now rank 12th in math. Pretty good. 24th in reading, still pretty squarely in the middle. And again, uh, I'm getting, you'll see the sources on all of these. We are journalists. We have to put it up. Otherwise, we feel bad. Um, <laughs> but that's in fourth grade. As we go farther along in the education chain, as you get to older or uh, you know, later and later grades, that number drops to 22nd in eighth grade. Same standard, same people, same numbers. With reading, we drop to 34th. Now, when we get to college-bound students, North Carolina is ranking 36th on SAT scores, 22 on ACT scores. I always found that really interesting, the, the differences between the two. And overall, according to the NEA, it is uh, about 44th in uh, spending per student, K through 12. So let's go more towards um, our own local schools here. Let's look at Charlotte Mecklenburg. So percentage of students scoring at or above grade level, grades three through eight. CMS is actually doing better than North Carolina as a whole. You can see in reading we're at 45.5% at or above grade level. In math, it's 46.4%. Again, better than North Carolina as a whole. But if you look at that number, what's interesting to me is that would indicate that more than half of all students three through, in grades three through eight are below or not achieving grade level in these two very important areas. So, oh, went a little too far. There we go. So now, that is uh, kind of a, a very interesting little look at the numbers. And it's one of the reasons why the numbers don't always tell the whole story when it comes to public education. So we're going to open with uh, a few questions that I'll have for the panelists. Um, but we're also going to go to you pretty quickly. So what I want everybody to do is just understand um, we've got two microphone runners. They're at either aisle. Aaron is here on your, likely on your left. Greg Collard is over on the far side. 
Um, when it comes time for a question, when we open up for questions, please raise your hands, and we'll try to pass you a microphone or bring you a microphone. Um, I'm going to ask that everybody tries to please keep it brief and on topic, and as always, please be civil. Um, the reason we ask for brief and on topic is we've only, again, got about 90 minutes to go through quite a lot, I'm sure. Um, and again, if you want to tweet as a different way to get your question out, please do so. Katie, again, will be watching that throughout the evening. All right? So I'm going to start our conversation with a very, very, very um, simple question. Uh, it's our title. I'm going to ask all four of our panelists, what, in their opinion, is the state of public education? I'm going to pick on you first, Eric. So what do you think is the state of, how would you, in your opinion, rate the state of our public education? Um, I think we have a lot of work to do. Um, the NAEP scores that, that you highlighted, um, particularly in fourth grade reading, were middle of the pack, were actually above the national average. 66% um, of our kids are not reading at grade level by the time they read the fourth, by the time they reach the fourth grade, our North Carolina children. Um, and I think that's, our hair should be on fire about that particular statistic. Um, it's, it's, it should be unacceptable in the United States of America that that many kids, um, particularly poor kids, uh, poor kids of color are not reading at grade level. So, and, and again, we're above the national average. So I think we have a tremendous amount of work to do. Um, and um, I think we're only, uh, and, and I think we ought to be proud of our accomplishments as well, but um, that particular number keeps me up at night. Torianna, as a teacher, how would you, in your opinion, what is the state of our public education? First, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to be on the panel today. Um, I, I like to use the word hope when I describe my students in my classroom. And at the beginning of the school year, I have hope for them and their goals and aspirations and for their parents and for myself as their teacher and then for my school and my district and my state. And I'm hopeful that we will achieve what we need to achieve for our students, but there is a long way to go to meet the needs of them, to meet, make sure that they're achieving at the level that they need to be achieving at so that the state of our education it is one of the top, our state can be one of the top states. Okay. Now, Tiffany, I know uh, as a charter school, some people don't always consider that as part of a, the public school system, but it is, actually. Mm -hmm. It is a, a in some places, it's, it is the entirety. And I'm thinking of New Orleans, where it is every school is now, every public school is now a charter school. How would you view the state of our public education? Um, it's definitely something that keeps me up at night. Uh, but whenever I look at data, I think of the Stockdale paradox, where you have to face the brutal facts, but at the same time, uh, keep the, uh, the hope and the optimism that things will get better at the same time. Uh, but I think you, with that hope and that optimism, you have to relentlessly work hard and relentlessly reinforce the things that work uh, to make sure that things get better. Dr. Morrison. Well, again, first of all, thanks for having us on the panel. Whoa, that's force of personality. How about that? Um, so first of all, uh, thanks for having us here. I want to acknowledge we have two board members of the Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education, uh, Tom Tate and Eric Davis, and thank them for being in the audience. I would say that we're not where we need to be. Um, you know, I lead one of the largest school districts in the country, and a lot of people like to talk about how large we are and how we're doing in volume. I always try to think about how we're serving every child. 
And until every child is going to be able to walk across the stage and get a diploma that really is a meaningful passport for a better tomorrow, we're not where we need to be. Um, I know the sad state of where we are and where we have been for a while and what we as a community have to decide is how are we going to move forward is if you put any kind of data, and we've seen some data tonight, on a bar graph and you say the uh, bars represent different races of students that we have the honor and privilege of serving. There are always going to be some of the bar graphs that are very high and some are very low. And all I'd have to do is tell you the title of the graph and you probably would be able to guess which bar graph belongs to which group of students. Uh, and if it's a positive bar graph, if we say it's uh, students taking AP uh, courses and getting uh, fours and fives, you'd probably guess that the taller bar graphs would be our white and Asian students and the lower bar graphs would be our African American and Latino students. And you'd probably be right. You'd be right here in Charlotte, you'd be right in Raleigh, you'd be right in Durham, uh, you'd be right in Kip, you'd be right uh, anywhere across the United States. If we flip that, and we said, um, no, it's actually students being suspended disproportionately, uh, then you would probably guess that the higher bars would be African-American Latino students, the smaller bars would be white and Asian, and you'd probably be right here in Charlotte, in Raleigh, in Durham, at Kip, and across the country. And so until our public education system can put high achievement for all students and have no noticeable discernment between uh, the achievement and the achievement being high, then there's always going to be uh, work to do. There's a, a piece of literature, Tale of Two Cities, the best of times, the worst of times, and I can tell you about increasing graduation rates across our state and the country, more students accessing college and career readiness material, uh, but then I can also tell you about where we continue to have uh, achievement gaps that we have not moved at the level we need to. So there's things certainly to feel positive about, and there's things that need immediate uh, attention. Now you had no idea I was gonna do this, but I actually have probably one of the graphs that you're thinking of right there. We just happened to pull it as well. And um, it's, you know, I knew about Mecklenburg schools long before I came here because I knew about the Swan versus Mecklenburg County right. case when it came to busing. Um, and since we've actually had two panel members bring this up already, I'd like to just uh, to delve into this just a little bit. Um, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic standing, these are major factors when it comes to the role, the likelihood of success right now in a public school. Um, I know we have I'm going to stick specifically with, uh, with the people who are a little bit closer to the trenches here on this one because I know you have two very uh, different points of view than just the policy point of view. Um, and the, the chart, just because I know it's difficult to see up here, the chart that we have up here is when it comes to proficiency rates for reading three through, third through eighth grade, white students, 81.4%. African-American and Hispanic students, 42.9%. That's a pretty dramatic drop. Um, and that is nationwide. It's certainly not just a Charlotte problem. Uh, but it is one that would affect our public schools. Now, I know um, Kip is, well, I'll let you describe this. Um, describe your student body. Um, so our student body is uh, about 75% free and reduced lunch, um, and 95% uh, African-American, about 5% Latino. Okay. And I'm going to bounce back, back and forth between you two. I hope you don't mind. Torian, tell me about your class. Um, my class is, I think I have one student who's Hispanic and everyone else is African-American. So you both deal with minority students primarily. You are majority minority schools. Are these the kinds of numbers that you're used to seeing in, your, in both of your schools? I mean, in your particular class, Torian, since obviously I understand uh, you're part of CMS. Yeah? Yes, I would say that actually when our kids come in, we see lower numbers when they come in. 
Um, and, you know, we have an extended school day and, you know, Saturday schools and things. And we work really hard to get them closer and closer to where they need to be. But I think the statistics speak for themselves that across the board that we're not necessarily doing the best job at serving our black and Hispanic students. And there, there has to be a big question here on why. Mm -hmm. What is it uh, that leads to numbers like this? Because, uh, you know, certainly it's not something that's done deliberately. Certainly it's not something that's done, you know, with any, it, it's an event that happens and why. I mean, this is one of the toughest, I think, questions when it comes to education. Eric, any ideas? Um, I, I hate to keep throwing numbers out, but I'll use the same number. Um, what gives me hope, and, and I think there's been multiple, there's a lot of data to support this, uh, the, the biggest impact on a child's life in terms of their student achievement levels is, um, and this is a 65%, so it's a little different than the 66, but 65% impact is teachers and leaders that are having the impact on student achievement. So I think if we're focusing our energies on, um, on teachers and on leaders, um, there, is, there is hope to move the needle on this. Um, teaching, uh, I taught for five years, um, and I, wasn't, I was an okay teacher, and I worked extremely hard at it. It is an extremely hard uh, profession, and I think we have not made it um, uh, over the course of many years, not only in our state, but it just, it, it's, not a, it's, not, it's not a profession that is as attractive as it needs to be um, in terms of having a real career path. And I think that is um, something that we ought to be laser focused on. And um, it's not something you just flip a switch on and all of a sudden you become Dorian. Um, uh, you, you, you have to work at it and you have to be dedicated to your craft and you need a lot of support to do it. And um, I, I think we're, we're scattershot in the way that we're supporting our teachers. I know you made news uh, with the Observer today, uh, Dr. Morrison, when uh, you said- How is that different from any other day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, that is true. Um, when you announced, just talking about supporting teachers, um, that uh, the November referendum, you, you see that as potentially being used for veteran teacher pay. Yeah, well actually, uh, to be completely accurate, what I said is that 80% um, of the proposed sales tax referendum uh, that will occur in November, uh, if passed, would go to employee salaries. Okay. So that will be our teachers, that will be our support staff. Uh, Eric's absolutely right. The best lever we have to change the lives of our students and to keep our students who come in ahead continuing ahead and to get our students who are far behind, caught up and to where they need to be, is the quality of the teacher. And so you have two employees in every school, uh, in every school district. You have our teachers and you have the people that support teachers. So um, our principals, the superintendent, secretaries, custodial, bus, everybody supports quality teaching. So the best lever that we have to increase student performance is to have a quality teacher in every classroom. Uh, and so we've absolutely got to take care of our teachers. We have to make the profession more attractive, not just the pay, and the pay absolutely needs to be addressed, but to make uh, young people want to come into the profession, have folks want to stay, uh, to give them professional growth without feeling like they need to leave the classroom. Uh, and then we need to address certainly the compensation. The compensation is not where it needs to be. It definitely has not been where it needs to be over the last decade in North Carolina. North Carolina has seen the fastest decline in teacher pay uh, of any state over the last 10 years up until this legislative session. Uh, our teacher pay is some $10,000 below the national average. Mm -hmm. 
$7,000 below the regional average. Uh, and, and no matter how much people love teaching in Charlotte or Durham or Guilford County or Raleigh, if they can go and do the same job that they love and go get compensated $10,000 more and get paid for their masters and, uh, and have other benefits along with the job, then that's gonna be attractive to them. So we have to show as a community and as a state that we value quality teaching and learning. Uh, and so I'm encouraged about uh, our state action that we took a good positive step forward. I'm optimistic and hopeful that through the local sales tax we can do things to enhance our salaries for our hardworking teachers, both uh, and especially our experienced teachers who feel like they maybe didn't get as much of the benefit of the uh, state action. But you know, something else that folks don't tend to re recognize is that 59% of our employees in Charlotte-Mecklenburg schools don't make what's defined as a livable wage. 59%, so our support staff, our secretaries, our teacher assistants, our building service workers, our bus drivers, our cafeteria workers, all individuals that have a profound impact on the quality of the education and the experience our children uh, see are, are not making a livable wage. So there's a lot of work that we need to do. Um, I'm optimistic that our community is gonna rally behind our teachers uh, and our educational system, and we see that constantly, and that's one of the things that brings me, amongst many things that keeps me up at night, that's one of the things that gives me a lot of hope for the future. I'm beginning to think that our panel doesn't get a whole lot of sleep. But I have to, <laughs> I have to follow up on this and say, it was the observer wrong then when it said that you, you um, announced that the bulk of the, the, the referendum money, if it is passed in November, would be going to veteran teachers? Actually, I don't think, so what, I, I don't think that's what they said. They said that um, when the question was, how would we use the money uh, if it was passed, I spoke about looking at uh, how we're going to address uh, teacher compensation and looking at the gaps between what the state did and what we think needs to happen locally. And certainly at the state level where you heard teachers got on average a 7% raise, uh, more uh, teachers newer to the profession got in excess of 7%. Uh, teachers who have been teaching for a long time, serving our community well, in some cases got as low as 0.3% increase. So we wanna use the opportunity if the uh, sales tax does pass, and we're very optimistic that it will, uh, to try to address those issues. Uh, also look at the ability to uh, uh, recruit and retain uh, teachers, especially for hard to uh, staff subjects like math, science, English as a second language, special education, uh, retention bonuses for quality teachers who are getting great results for our students, uh, and then also address the needs of our support staff. So I, I actually thought the, the Charlotte Observer uh, did a very good story, and I, I'm very supportive of it. No, I wasn't questioning the journalism, yeah. just making sure I had Sometimes I do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's, uh, we've, we've barely scratched the surface here, but obviously we want to get to what you have in terms of questions for our panel. So if you please would raise your hand. Again, we have Aaron and Greg. We'll go ahead and walk around. Uh, please move them up as you can. We'll try to do best. In the back. Good evening. My name is Faith Triggs, and I wanted to know if the panel was familiar with a study called Equal Opportunity uh, the Equal Opportunity Project, where uh, economists from across the nation, including Harvard, put together a study that was released in 2013, and Charlotte came in last of 50 metropolitan communities with our students um, being able to get out of poverty. And so I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of that study, um, but my question to you is, what is each of you doing to maybe increase partnerships with the business community and to really get the business community involved, because we need a paradigm shift. Um, I think you all are doing everything that you can do in the, in the confines of your working environments, but I think the community and the business community has got to get involved. 
So I'd be curious to see what your relationship is with the business community. This goes to you. Yeah, so I am familiar with the study. Uh, very disheartening as a community. It talks about um, the opportunity for a child to be in the cycle of poverty and get out of the cycle of poverty. And I think all four of us on this panel have this absolute fierce uh, idea and, and, and this uh, drive that a great education can lift all children and keep them out of poverty. There's another study that I think is equally as compelling as that study, and it's called Chance for Success. And what it says is, what is the chance that a student is not going to be able to walk across a stage and get a diploma and be able to access higher education or a, a high-level school career even before they ever start kindergarten? And there's three primary factors. Uh, the first factor uh, and the most important driver of that is, are they born into poverty? And if a student is born into poverty, uh, there ha there's a lot of challenges that you have to be very intentional to get them out of poverty. Uh, if a student's mother didn't graduate, that is another huge challenge. I know the fellows like to say it's all about us, but it really, if the mother graduates, there's a great chance the child's going to graduate. If the mother doesn't graduate, then unfortunately many times districts all across the country are challenged to have that student walk across stage to get a diploma. The last area is around pre-K education, uh, early childhood. And when students get pre-K, it actually greatly diminishes the challenges of the first two obstacles. And so one of the issues that we think is a, is a game changer, and one of the things that can radically change a lot of the data that you see is if our state can really go all in on quality, really quality early childhood. <laughs> Give it up. Go right to applause. Okay. For every dollar we spend, we save $7 of social services we don't need and can be reinvested into K-12 and higher education. And workforce development, every dollar we spend, $1.93 comes back uh, in terms of uh, workforce development and job creation. So what I love is that yesterday when we were at the Charlotte Observer, uh, having that conversation about the local sales tax referendum, one of our partners there was our uh, Chamber of Commerce, speaking about the support of our public education system. Uh, one of the things that I did when I became the superintendent two years ago was to feel like we could do a lot more with partnerships, and so we created an office of family and community engagement and partnerships. We have our uh, chief uh, uh, partners in our audience today, Valerie Truesdale, and we have rapidly expanded our business partnerships. Now, the interesting thing is when I'm the superintendent, I'm going to visit with a business group, and usually they just get the checkbook out and they ask, how big is the check I want them to write? I'll never turn down your money. Okay, I never will. But I'm actually more interested in our businesses uh, being in our schools. I'm more interested in helping us shape what are the careers for our children today that it's not just about graduating them, it's about getting them with the kind of skills, the 21st century skills, for jobs that haven't even been created yet. I'm interested in our businesses helping us with internships, with apprenticeships, things that are going to make the uh, teaching and learning that's happening in your classrooms actually applicable to the real world. So we're creating a number of different partnerships. Uh, it's a community issue that we all own. Uh, as a community, we need to realize that uh, we, we cannot accept being the lowest in the country as a city on that measure. Uh, and again, I, I think all of us are united in an idea that great education can lift and keep all children out of poverty. I want to actually go to Torian here on this, because when we were talking before the panel tonight, you actually brought up a very interesting subject, which goes along with poverty. And you told me that quite a few of your students, and may even be the bulk of your class, still found themselves in, I believe you termed it, situational poverty. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? So I've 
several workshops, but learning about the different levels of poverty. And situational poverty describes, you know, the families of the students that I work with, you know, some of them are college educated, some of them have had careers for a really long time, and then when, you know, our economy fell out, parents lost jobs. So they don't know how to handle poverty. They don't know how to handle not being able to pay their bills because they have been hit, had that obstacle before and someone in their family hasn't either. So they don't have someone to coach them through that process. So, you know, we're not just serving our students, but we're serving our families and taking care of families as wholes. Um, addressing the community partners. I am so grateful for the partners, the, the community partners that our school has. I mean, I think we send home 30 backpacks that the church across the street packs for students um, that go home on Fridays with our kids so that they have meals over the weekends. Um, we have partners that come in and do school events and fund pizza nights so that we can motivate families to come in because they can get a free dinner. Um, and so that's motivating for our families and for our students. And also with Kip, and then we'll get back to <clears throat> audience questions. I just find this, this question particularly interesting. Um, poverty could represent a large part of your, your student body, wouldn't you mm -hmm. say? Mm -hmm. So how do you have to deal with it? Is it partnerships? Is it curriculum? Is, is it character building? What is it? It's a little bit of everything. There's not, there's not a silver bullet. It's partnerships. It's character. It's curriculum, it's supporting the family and getting them engaged. Um, there's a lot of factors. So we just had what's called mock interview day. And so what our eighth graders do is uh, business, um, different business leaders in the community come into our school and they um, interview our students and they get to um, practice interviewing for whether they're going to private school, boarding school, um, whether they're just, and, and just in general getting the uh, skills they need to be able to get a job. Um, and so they get the chance to interview, but then they also get feedback and they get the opportunity to try it again. And I think about when I was getting a job, if I had the opportunity to get feedback and then try it all over again to, um, to get better at that skill, um, it's an amazing opportunity. So from, from um, business partners coming in and volunteering, from mock interview day, um, from building our community garden in the back, um, they pulled up our gym floor so that we could get a new gym floor. Um, the business community has been very supportive in helping our students, um, career days, all of the above. But those opportunities are important because curriculum alone is not going to change poverty. Kids need exposure. Um, kids need to be able to see what they are capable of doing and where they can be. They need to be able to have trips that show them different parts of the world, different parts of our, uh, of our country so they can see that hey, you know, there's somewhere else that I can live outside of the state of North Carolina. They have to know that there are colleges outside of the state of North Carolina. Not just know, but be able to see it and see themselves there. So I don't think, I would say it's just curriculum, I wouldn't say it's just business partners, but I would say the exposure in general and all those things help to show kids in poverty. Um, for me, had I not been able to see, I wouldn't be where I am today, right? And so people rallying around in my community, in my church, all of the above and the opportunities I had are what helped me get to where I am and what can help all of our kids get to where they, where they, where they see themselves and beyond where they can see themselves. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, last qu quick question, and then I'll get back to the audience questions. Obviously, as the governor's senior education advisor, any, any breaking news on changing early education funding? or? <laughs> well, I'm not going to answer that one, but what I will, <laughs> but what I will do, I, I don't have that kind of, uh, I have influence but not authority, but what I will say though, to answer your question a little uh, from a state level, um, 
I think the need for, and I think it's been pretty well articulated by the panel members, for a business to be a part of, of the solution at a more grassroots level is important. Um, and, and Heath, you mentioned signing checks. But I think what we need is a sustained business um, effort that not only through um, finances, but also through advocacy. And if I were to say three buckets that I would put it in, it would be um, reading by third grade, which would begin at birth. It would be um, ensuring that we have an excellent teacher in every classroom. And it would be ensuring that, um, you know, we have 1.5 million North Carolinians who have some, what we call partway home, some college, no degree. So from plumbers to PhDs, these are folks that, um, for one reason or another, have, drop, have dropped out of a, of a higher education opportunity. The influence on our economy um, is, uh, on all three of those, um, is, is, is significant. And I think every business leader, both on the right and the left, needs to put sustained pressure on our political leadership to, um, and this is not going to happen overnight, um, but about to, to put the sustained leadership on them to, uh, to do the right thing for our, our 1.6 million um, students in North Carolina. Um, and I actually think that um, this session was a good example of that. Um, there's a couple of organizations um, that I'd mentioned just on a statewide level. Um, Best NC, I think, did a great job of, of putting some, um, some positive pressure on our political leaders, again, both, both on the left and the right, to make sure that education was a, um, was a key issue. Um, I think the Chamber of Commerce, particularly with um, you know, fierce advocates for high standards, um, and, and uh, believe me, I went back and forth on that bill and was right in the middle of it, um, and we can, I'm sure we'll, this will come up later on. <laughs> um, the, the Common Core uh, bill could have been a, a heck of a lot worse. Um, so we did, we, we, you know, it's not perfect, uh, the role that I'm in, but um, I do think that business needs to influence their, uh, their authority in that way. The other thing that I would just say, and I, I'll stop, but um, this is important to me, um, is that I think too often business leaders um, will look at educators and look at the education system and say, well, you know, at Wells Fargo, we could have just done it this way, and uh, why, why isn't the teacher doing it this way? And I would, um, I, I think that's a really dangerous um, place to be. Um, I think that our, our business leaders need to, um, and, our, and our politicians need to listen to educators. And I saw... Um, significant transformation um, in our governor when, when he began um, listening to, to Heath and superintendents like him, to school leaders like Tiffany, and to teachers like Dorian. Um, we, I think we made real progress, and, um, and, and I think we need to have civil conversations about how we solve problems and, and get away from our talking points. I'd like to just add one other thing about the research study. It was interesting. I was at a function at the Urban League earlier in the year, and that research study came up. Uh, we had a representative, there's a community group, uh, Alan McIntyre is part of that, trying to look at how we build a better Charlotte through making sure that every student by third grade is reading at grade level. Uh, and, and we had a representative from the Annie Casey Foundation, which is one of the statistics that you showed. Both actually lifted up Charlotte Mecklenburg schools as doing one of the best jobs in the country of taking students that we get behind and trying to get them caught up as quick as possible. So the challenge and, and the opportunity we have as a community is how do we not have our students start kindergarten already behind? And it gets back to pre-K. And, and groups like Best NC, business groups, 
are really rallying behind this idea of if you start behind and if you don't in, uh, intervene early and often, then you're always going to have to accept that students are going to be behind. So as a state, as a community, can we really lift up early childhood, wraparound services, really try to meet the needs and respect our families and, 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 and buy all in on this idea that once a student starts school, that every student ought to start school at the same level. That's, that's got to be a critical part of this conversation. And, and there's another thing about this that I, I do want to bring up, and um, please also audience members, go ahead and raise your hands. We'll get to you right after this, this uh, question, and I'll leave it open. This, this conversation is about the state of public education, and I'm curious. Every single panel member so far has talked about the positive aspects of partnerships with the business community and others. I agree with that. But what does it say about the state of our education if we rely on business partnerships to really, it sounds like, provide almost a cornerstone, of, especially with early childhood or you know, whether it's trips or anything. Is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What does it say about our education system that we have to look for, you have to ask for money, you have to ask for field trips, you have to get backpacks, you have to, well, you have to deal with politics, and that's probably a whole lot worse than everything. But, I, I leave that as an open question. What does this need for partnerships say about our education system in the state? Nobody jumping on that one? All right, so I'll start. Um, Thank you. You know, let's go back to the statistics that you showed. Now, if I said to most business leaders, okay, you have uh, 50 different entities and 50 different businesses that are part of your franchise, and the one that you're funding, 46 out of 50, is actually outperforming the average of your other franchises you'd have business leaders saying, we got to invest in that one, okay? Mm -hmm. Except in North Carolina where we say somehow uh, we need to invest less. Uh, that's a challenge. Uh, to your point, more money is not always going to translate to better results. Mm -hmm. uh, Washington, D.C. spends the most proportionally per student, and I certainly, though Kaya Henderson is a dear friend of mine, the chancellor, and she's rapidly trying to change things, uh, they've got a lot of work to do. Uh, so more money doesn't always translate into better results, but more money when used effectively when used early, when used for the right things like lifting the salaries of our teachers and our principals and sports staff can make a heck of a difference. Uh, so at the end of the day, what you, when you look at what's happened uh, in North Carolina with educational funding, uh, we have not only seen dramatic cuts, we've become less of a priority in the state budget. In 2002-2003, K-12 education was approximately uh, 41 percent of the educational budget. It's now a little over 37 percent. So it's lessening as a priority. That translates, if you keep the same amount of money that was available, not in this legislative session, I actually haven't had a chance to dive into the numbers, but in the last budget that was passed, if you kept the same percentage to go back to 41 percent, there would be $668 million available in the same dollars, not increasing times, it's the same dollars, $668 million, available across the state. CMS is 10% of the overall students served in the state of North Carolina. That would be $68 million available for education here in Charlotte and Mecklenburg. Reducing class sizes, early interventions, uh, great programs for our students, increasing salaries for our teachers. So, you know, I, I think it's not, when you look at, as a public, it has to be really, as you're looking at all these political ads and there's more money, there's less money. There's budget cuts, there's budget, it's got to be so confusing, but when you look at the percentage of a budget, I think that shows priorities. When I present a budget to my Board of Education, I always say our budget reflects our priorities. Mm -hmm. And so as a state and as a community, we have to really ask ourselves, what are we prioritizing more 
now than when we were prioritizing in 2002-2003 that K-12 education, uh, higher ed education is a much smaller percentage of the overall budget pie. I think we need to ask that question. Right, let's go to questions. I wanted to make more of an observation than anything else. Um, I'm not a CMS employee, I'm a parent. Uh, my husband and I have two sons, one's a junior at Chapel Hill and one's a freshman. They went to David Cox Elementary School, David Sabi Middle, North Med. We chose to put them in public school. By the time they hit high school, they chose to remain in public school. We could have put them anywhere. But one of the things that troubles me most about these discussions is kind of the elephant in the room. After consuming many years of public education, it was the rare exception that we had, or we didn't have a teacher who was compassionate, passionate, and hardworking. It isn't that our students are left behind between eight and three. In many instances, they're left behind between three and eight. And I don't mean that in a mean way. They have parents who don't have health insurance. They have parents who don't have a job. So Dr. Morrison talked about students coming left behind or, or behind when they hit kindergarten. It, what troubles me is we use education and teachers as a battering ram for other societal issues that if we could put resources to and not blame education, that perhaps it isn't education that's leaving these kids behind. Because in our experience, we had unbelievable teachers and administrators consistently. And so at some point, I think we have to wake up and say, perhaps it is not in the school that the students are being left behind. Perhaps it's factors outside the school. So, and I just want to commend the teachers that we had. They are in Chapel Hill partly because of what we did, but in large measure because of the phenomenal teachers that our sons had. So thanks for all you do. Thank you. And that's, that's a, a really interesting point when it comes to the role of parents in education. And I, I have to agree, teachers always seem to be the standard bearer. Teachers often are the ones who are either credited or blamed for whatever happens in a classroom. But the classroom doesn't end in the classroom. Um, I, I'm, I apologize, I don't know specifics as much as I should when it comes to, to David Cox, but do you have wraparound services there as well? It's not just the backpacks going home? Wraparound? Um, it's a term that I knew from DC. Um, other services. Um, Things like, uh, I did a story in, in Missouri where they had a dental clinic, where they had doctors come in, they had checkups for the kids, those kinds of things. I don't know if that's the we, kind of thing. We have a mentoring program mm -hmm. for our students, but we don't have, at this time, we don't have that. Do you think that would help? I'm sure for some of them it will, yeah. I, um, speaking to your point, the summer I read The Outliers, mm -hmm. and they talked about education and how you know, students in poverty make the greatest gains when you look at their test scores between September and May. But when you look at the same child between September of one school year to September of the next school year, it's students who come from affluent families who have the greater gains because they keep performing, they keep reading, they keep doing things over the summer because they have families who support that and have that set up that environment for them versus, you know, our students in poverty who go home and play video games and watch TV and don't have access to camps or educational programs in the summertime. So if you were going to tell parents, do these three things to make sure your child is ready. Do these three things to make sure that your child is not left behind before they even start. Any idea what those three things would be? Not, not again to put you on the spot. They should know their name. I'm sorry? <laughs> we have kids coming into kindergarten who, you know, so-and-so, and different names, different ethnic backgrounds, teachers, but, you know, they don't know their name. They can't write their name. They don't know the letters that make up their name. 
Um, I think that that should be a priority. That should be something that if your child comes to school, they should know how to write their name. Um, you know, read. Read at home with your child. And if you can't read with your child, model reading to your child. You know, I talk to my students, you know, I'm like, I'm reading emails, or I read the newspaper this morning, but just prioritize reading with them. Um, and then I think for parents, when I have parents who support me, even though they can't help their child with homework because they're working their second job to provide for their basic needs, but when I call a parent because there's a concern or something happened in the classroom and they said, oh, I'm so sorry, Ms. Julie, I will take care of that as soon as I get home tonight. I mean, supporting teachers is, I mean, that helps me with my job and it teaches the child that education is important and that even though the parent can't help with homework and can't be there with, for them after school, but they value what their child is doing at school. Tiffany, I'm gonna ask you the same question. Um, because this, is, again, is also something that you deal with at KIPP mm -hmm. a lot. If you were going to tell parents three things to make sure their child isn't left behind before they start, what would it be? I think about this a lot because I now have a four-year-old and she will, she'll be five this April and she'll be going to school next year. And I think about with so many kids that come into school behind, what do I need to do for my child to make sure that she goes into school prepared? Um, I think reading is very important. We read every night and I am working on helping her learn how to read. Um, I also think making sure that they have a voice in some way, that they're either able to articulate themselves, make decisions, small decisions or whatnot, um, so that they can have the thinking skills to be able to make choices as they get older. Um, and then I would also say that going into school, um, I think the other thing that I'm working with her hard on is, you know, some basic math skills right now. Um, I think the support is great for teachers. Teachers need to be supported. Um, parents need to, you know, make sure that kids know that education is important, um, whether or not you're educated or not, but by going up to the school every now and again, making sure that homework or whatever the backpack is set up, that it shows that it's important. Can I just add one thing? Oh, I'm sorry, please. I, I think um, sometimes, <coughs> we're all quick to want to know who to point the finger at. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think you know, politicians will point the finger at public service and public service will point the finger at um, some industry and, and teachers will feel like they're getting the finger pointed all the time. And, and, and sometimes I feel that there's this blaming of parents. Um, you know, when I know I haven't been a teacher, still feel I'm a teacher on special assignment, principal now superintendent, one of the largest school districts in the country. Um, we often have, uh, I, I've never seen where we haven't been successful where a parent and the school are working together. I, I've seen some children that sometimes are a little harder to educate than others, but when the family and the school are working together, I, I've always seen that magic. I've never seen that not work. Now, sometimes we're saying, if, if only the parents would do more. Well, Tiffany's right. We need our parents reading to our children at home. But if we in the school district are sending materials home in English and the family doesn't speak English as a primary language, we're, we're probably not going to get what we're asking for. When we say it's important to engage our families in our schools, but when we structure our meetings at a time when the parents can't be there because they're working two or three jobs, then we're probably not going to get the parent participation we're asking for. You know, there's, there's almost a code sometimes that we, we speak about in education. And there's like a big game that's being played. And some parents, because we've known that game, we played that game, we know all the rules of the game, and we know how to advantage our child. 
There's another group of parents that know just enough about the rules of the game to get their child through. And there's a no, whole other group of parents that don't even know there's a game being played. So right. we, we need to address that. And I'm really excited. In October, we're going to be bringing Karen Mapp uh, to our committee. Karen Mapp is the preeminent uh, parent engagement expert in the country. Uh, she's been uh, visiting and working with Johnson C. Smith, so we got a great opportunity. She's going to come in and do a lot of work with Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. Uh, I just very rarely encounter parents that don't want to be part of the educational process. We just have to be very intentional about making sure that, uh, that, that we're all coming to the table to serve that child. Um, just two things. One, in terms of, I, I too am a parent. I've got a kindergarten or fourth grader at home. And um, I think one thing that's really important is we, we tend to, and I did it in the beginning of the panel here today, we tend to set these, these benchmarks, and adults do this, and it's, it's probably appropriate that we do do this as educators. But the whole reading by third grade, obviously that's a critical milestone but really what we need to in, um, encourage, in, particularly in our kids, is a, is a growth mentality. Um, the idea that um, losing is, is not the be-all to end-all. So I'll, I'll use an example of my daughter, Scarlett. She started, she's one of those privileged kids who did something this summer. She was on the swim team. Mm -hmm. And um, Scarlett um, was not, she lost every meet. She was dead, she was dead last or second to last in, in every meet that she swam in. And, but what she was most proud of was that she was the most improved in terms of her time. And I think when we can, when we can encourage that kind of growth mentality in our students, um, and not a fixed mentality, um, and, and this is unfortunately what I think these, uh, you know, and, and I am a standards guy. I think we need, to, I think it's an equity issue if we do not um, have some kind of test or accountability metric to, so that we know how we're doing. Um, but it really is important that that, that growth mentality is, is encouraged in our kids and in our teachers. It's not a be-all to end-all, one-shot one um, fits all. Uh, with teachers, and just to add some data to the conversation around teachers, the, there was a study that came out, Gates funded it um, pretty heavily, um, and it was a pretty comprehensive national review of, of teachers. It's called the MET study. And basically what it found was that 15% of our teachers um, are absolutely knocking it out of the park. 15% um, are really struggling um, to the point where maybe they're not doing a disservice to kids, maybe don't need to be in the profession. And then there's that critical middle. That's pretty much what you see in every profession. And what we need to be devoted to um, and make policies for is not the 15% on either side, which is, un which is unfortunately what I think too many policymakers do, but what are we doing to move that 70% so that they can, they can aspire to get to that top 15%? And then I think you'll see that percentage go, go higher. But that's not something, again, that you snap your fingers at and do. And, and we can't do it by bashing um, our teachers and blaming them for everything. It's just, um, and, and too often I think you'll see leaders use that as a, um, as a way to um, position a certain um, agenda. All right, I know, uh, <coughs> excuse me, this gentleman has been waiting. Okay. 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 Uh, my name is Barry Sherman. I'm a school social worker with CMS. The children I, on the west side of Charlotte, the children I work with every day step into an incredible injustice. And when we speak about what keeps us awake at night, we are reliving segregation. 
in public schools, not just Charlotte, but across this country. And what really bothers me, and, and I'm outraged actually, and not with any of you, not with any of you, um, because learning, we know learning occurs within a context. And teachers are being inundated with research-based interventions, evidence-based practice. 60 years of social science research tells us that segregated schools don't work. Homogeneous groupings of schools don't work. So when you put kids who look alike and from the same socioeconomic background under a roof, a roof that happens to be falling down in the school that I'm working in, and, and we ask questions of why aren't these children learning? Of course poor children can learn. They just learn a lot better when they're in diverse settings. And this is a question of political will. What Dr. Morrison is trying to achieve, and I'm speaking specifically about Dr. Morrison because I'm on his team as a CMS person, and what the administrators at my school are trying to achieve the job that they're trying to do and that we're trying to do is made so much easier if there was political will that would fix the hole in the ship because the ship is taking on water with every bit of um, money we invest, every bit of emphasis we put on teaching. And the last thing I'll say is, from my humble perspective, we are not going to teach our way or buy our way out of the problems that public education is facing. It has to be coupled with the political will of a community to address what decades has taught us is, is a wicked injustice, and kids pay the price for that. And I'm not sure where in our community that political will is alive to do anything about that. That's a really interesting point, and I'm, I'm very curious about this, too. Um, and I'm not even sure who to direct this question to because it is such an all-encompassing question. But as I said before, I knew of Mecklenburg County long before I ever could, frankly, find it on a map because of this very famous bus case, Swan versus Mecklenburg County. Um, that ended in the 90s. So to, how important is that racial, socioeconomic, ethnic diversity to classroom and to learning? Do we know? I mean, there's lots of data out there, as the gentleman said. Um, I know this is a tough one. I'm just curious what the thoughts are. Uh, I, I mean, I agree with your statement. Uh, the, when you say political will, you know, politicians are, are voted on by people. And you know, the two kind of elephants in the room that I see are whether or not people are willing to raise taxes or whether or not parents are willing to send their kids um, to schools that are truly diverse. And, and those, are, those, aren't, those aren't, you know, I'm not, I'm not skirting, you know, the, I'm not, you know, politicians deserve plenty of, you know, they take responsibility too. But I, you mentioned it's, it's got to come from, it's got to come from a society uh, and from a community um, to, you know, if you talk about um, taking on an issue like busing, mm -hmm. a little bit of history here mm -hmm. uh, in this community, um, and segregation, then that's going to be a, a that's going to be pretty controversial, and um, and you know people. We all know the history on this, and and you know raising taxes and how people you know, the quarter tails sales tax. I, I venture to guess that's going to be news for the next few months here, 
Um, these are these are not and these are not small issues, and and these are these are things that people feel pretty strongly about, and these are things that people vote on. So I, I'm not you know I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, and I don't ha I don't have a solution for you, but I don't disagree with anything you said. So, Barry, first of all, let me correct one thing you said. I'm on your team, okay, the, <laughs> and and that's important. Um, I also want to recognize we have a county commissioner with us, Dumont Clark. I appreciate Dumont being here this evening. Dumont. <laughs> Dumont. <laughs> you know, um, the research is very clear that students uh, impacted by poverty, mobility, English second language, special needs, learn better uh, in diverse settings. And so when we uh, put students together and uh, assignment plans that impact poverty, uh, we have to be real intentional if we're going to want the same results for all of our children. There are schools across the country, they're called 90-90-90 schools, 90% uh, free and reduced lunch, poverty, 90% majority minority, 90% highest performance. So it can be done. Uh, it takes a lot of will, it takes a lot of resolve, and it takes very intentional resources. I think, you know, one of the things in coming to Charlotte uh, and this is my third year, and, uh, and I'm in the community a lot. And, and one of the things that troubles me about what I think is an amazing place to live, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure I understood the term the plight south before I came. I, I understand a little bit better. And let's put some truths on the table. If I say what's the most racially isolated time in Charlotte, we're going to say probably on Sundays, okay? Church. And I go to a lot of services, a lot of different <coughs> services. And I, I don't see a lot of diversity, okay? Um, when you look at places where folks live, I'm not always seeing folks coming together. Um, you'd like to think that would happen in our schools, but we now, through quarters, have local neighborhood schools, so our schools tend to match the demographics of the neighborhoods in which they reside. Um, I think one of the challenges that we're facing in CMS, uh, and it's something I'm gonna really ask our community to look long and hard at, is what's happening at the state level uh, with choice. Now, there's this bud words around choice, and it's like the, I call it the intoxicating argument for choice. You know, why would we allow our schools, you know, our students to remain in schools that are chronically underperforming and failing their children? Well, I agree with that. But when we offer choice, how are we operating the choice? In North Carolina, I think there's some real interesting things happening around choice. And I'm glad Tiffany's here today because um, under the guise of choice, uh, we have rapidly expanded the number of charter schools in our state. I think we have 129 charter schools. And, and I sat on a panel here on a Saturday a couple of months ago. And I know MECED is here. And uh, one of the advocates for charter schools was saying we started the charter school movement so that students in poverty wouldn't have to have these chronic underperforming schools. Well, I found that very interesting because that same individual was leading the effort for the charter school advocacy platform for North Carolina. And Eric, you know the first three bullets on that advocacy platform. Legislature and governor, please don't make charter schools have to provide transportation. Please don't make charter schools have to provide food service. And please don't mandate that charter schools have to reflect the diversity of the neighborhoods in which they reside. And so what we find in this idea of choice, we're finding examples of charter schools that look more like private schools. They're not educating all children. And so in District 1 here in Mecklenburg County, the highest concentration of poverty of any charter school, and charter schools, and Tiffany knows a lot more about this than I do, are public schools. 
The highest concentration of poverty you'll find in charter schools in District 1 is 7%. It's not what District 1 in Mecklenburg County looks like. And so, you know, part of what we have to do is to address why are we doing that as a community? Why is the state making those, and then why, when we're inviting not quality charter schools like KIPP across the country, but we're offering, offering for-profit charter schools, and we passed legislation that says that you as taxpayers don't need to know how those for-profit charter schools, that more often than not are intentionally not recruiting diversity into their schools, you don't need to know how they're spending their money. Well, I think as taxpayers, we do need to know, and we need to demand answers. Now, the other part, I agree with Eric on this, okay? As families and as a community, we have to ask ourselves, why are we afraid of having our children attend diverse schools, okay? And, and we have to, I mean, you can't blame a politician on that. I can't blame a political, we as parents oftentimes have a choice, and many times as parents, we're choosing not to have our children go to a diverse school. So we have to think about why that is, and we have to, as a community, have that conversation. Mm -hmm. I know, so you've been standing, we're gonna go right to you, but I do have to note, in case the audience didn't see, you were nodding your head along with most of those points. I think it's always fun to see the, the, you know, a little agreement between the classic public school and the charter school system, because some people assume that it's not there, and it is. Thank you for being patient, sir. <laughs> not a problem. So my name is Richmond Baker. I'm a parent here in Charlotte. I'm actually on the PTSA at Mallet Creek High School, pretty diverse school. We like our school. Um, but I'm, I think, you know, poverty has a lot to do with what we're talking about, but it's not the only thing that kind of defines the state of education in North Carolina. I have two kids at Chapel Hill, like the lady up there. One's a senior, one's a sophomore. Um, and I have two who are still in CMS, one at Cato, uh, school choice, right, and one at Mallet Creek High School. Um, one of the challenges that I've noticed over the years of being in the school system, it, it's, it's related to the like end of course exams and end of grade exams, right? One thing that was surprising to me, right, you have these end of course exams, end of grade exams, where the kid gets a score and it drops them into either a one, two, three, four, or maybe five. I think five is a new piece to that, right? Yeah. And in the past, if you got a three or higher, that means that you did fine, right? And I was like, okay, cool, you got a three or higher, you must be doing great. But I learned that a, most people would think three or higher means that you passed, that means that you got like a 70 or something like that on the exam. But I was very surprised to find that it's not a 70. I don't know what it is, but I heard it was 30, 40, Percent and so my thing is, are we really looking at the data in its truest form, right? Are we are we giving the parents the information that they need to have to make sure that their children are doing a good job? Because if your kid gets a three, you're like, okay, well, you must be doing fine. But I think many parents don't know that that three equates to a thirty percent, um, and I think that you know we need to take a truer look at the data. Um, to make sure that the parents know what's going on with their kids in school. And did you know that a three now, uh, I think just last year, would have been a two, mm -hmm. which is failing. <laughs> so those numbers move around quite a they lot. Do. It's an interesting question, I have to say, and it's all part of, I'm going to try to kind of paraphrase that down, sir, if you don't mind a little bit here, but uh, standards, grades. You know, I went to a classroom where basically it's like if I got a 90 or an 80, a 70 or 60, I knew if it was an A, B, C, D, or heaven, heaven forbid an F. Um, these standards change now almost every year. It seems like it's, 
well, we're, we're going to take you know, more rigorous standards. The numbers are going to drop. They drop. So then we morph the standards. Are we now grading to pass the standard, if that makes sense? Um, I'll leave that open. I know it, it has uh, anyone? All right, Eric, you're up. Um, just I'll just speak to what's happening with the legislation uh, with Common Core state standards and the, and the standards and commission. Um, that, the first meeting for that is going to be Monday. Mm -hmm. I'm really pleased to report that there are 11. Um, uh, there have been 11 people chosen to, to serve on the standards and assessment commission. Um, two of whom are real stellar um, uh, Charlotte educators. Um, Ann Clark, who many of you know, is going to be serving on that, and I'm thrilled about that. She's one of the co most competent people I've ever worked with. And uh, also Denise Watts, who uh, leads Project Lift. So I think having those voices on that commission are going to be really important. Um, another point that I'd want to make uh, with, there's been a lot of back and forth about Common Core, and this is obviously a huge political football. <coughs> Um, the standards have remained intact. Um, this commission is an advisory commission. They're going to do a deep dive. Um, there are real concerns, sir, about, and they're not new, um, but we need to keep rigorous high standards. Um, there are concerns on both the left and the right about, about are these the right things for our kids, and I think we need to do a thorough review. Um, but we will not change the standards unless, the, the, all the advisory board can do is advise the state board and then it will take state board action. So these things are not gonna change, the standards are not gonna change this year. Um, and I don't blame you for being confused because the name of the bill is repeal Common Core and that was the headline obviously. Um, don't, I'm just the messenger here for our General <laughs> Assembly from Raleigh. Um, but but, but it, I can assure you that um, We've, we've got a good group on this, on this commission, and getting back to political will, um, if you want high expectations for your kids and you want high standards, or if you have concerns, um, this, is, this is a forum for, for, for doing that. So um, that's, uh, that's just an update from, from how this is going I'm gonna ask you a question, and we'll try to keep this brief because I know we're, we're down to the last few minutes. I wanna get a bunch more questions if we can. Is it fair, is it appropriate to have this constantly changing standard? Can we even keep the grades going? I'm looking at my friend and uh, boss, uh, Tom Tate. We, we were trying to present data last year, and, and Tom had what I would uh, professionally say a little meltdown on, on the document. <laughs> because it's- He never melts down, he's we, a pretty we calm never, dude. <laughs> we never can have one way to measure. Uh, I think in our state over the last four years, we've had three different set of standards five different ways we've assessed those standards. Yep. Even last year, so we take the deep dive on the Common Core um, and we assess on a harder standard against the Common Core. So you think at least this year we'll be able to know the state decides that we're not gonna have four levels of proficiency, we're gonna have five. And so as a parent, as a community, to board members, it is so challenging to explain how we're doing. If I go out to Mallard Creek and I say, you know, Mallard Creek High School, go Mallard Creek. ACT scores are up, SAT scores are down a little bit, EOCs uh, are uh, doing well, we made AMOs by meeting and exceeding the confidence interval in most of the areas of the 26 assessed standards, and your football team's gonna win states. <laughs> the only thing most parents probably heard that they could get around is Go team. football team's gonna win, and, and, and you'll get Butler again, don't worry about it. Right. Um, so I think we absolutely owe our communities and our families the ability to understand <coughs> have one set of standards, if they're rigorous standards, college are ready, 
assess, and it's about multiple measures. It's never about one test. It's about multiple ways to see how we're doing with our children. I apologize. I'm going to stop there just to make sure we can get some more questions in. Okay. Um, hello. My name is Stacey Abasi-Akon. Um, I'm in my 12th year of teaching at Mallard Creek Elementary. Um, I've been here since 2002. Um, and just with the um, discussion about um, achievement, especially achievement in reading, um, since I've been here, um, and I know you've talked about this, but the um, amount of testing has increased. And um, so in second grade, and especially at the K-2, we have to really do a lot to build that framework so that the students can be successful and be able to you know, read by third grade. So, um, you know, with all the testing, I know there's, you know, federal mandated testing, state mandated testing, um, and maybe some by the district, but how are we to um, be expected to um, have our students make those achievements in reading in the earlier grades if we're spending most of our time assessing? And is there, I guess, you know, data that shows, so the more, assessing, the more assessments that we do map dibbles, all of that stuff, is that showing an increase in student achievement in the K-2 grades? Um, it's just, just kind of just you know, my thoughts on that, um, because I know like I want to provide all that I can for my students and make sure that they are ready for third grade, um, so they're not having to be a part of that you know, group that has to do the portfolio for the read to achieve, um, but just, I guess, question or you know, thoughts on that. Susan, a fair, fair way to sum this up is, are there too many tests, and is that getting away in, in the way of instruction? Yes. You find a similar situation in your class? I mean, I sat in a planning meeting today because we, um, reading 3D is the big test, TRC is the big test that we have to give. It's individual to every student. And for second grade, there's four components. One is uh, nonsense word fluency, which is a minute per child. One is um, oral reading fluency, which is six minutes per child. And then it's um, to figure out their reading level and depending on how much a child excels or goes back between the summer and the school year, it could take up to 20 minutes per child. And then the last one is, can they read their sight words? And so, you know, I sat in my planning meeting today and we said, what can I get our kids to do independently because we need to test students one-on-one. -on -one. And so, yeah, there's a lot of testing that's happening in schools that, you know, I you know, spent the first two or three weeks setting up procedures and routines in my classroom, but now I'm not meeting with kids, I'm not conferencing with my students, I'm meeting with them one-on-one -on -one to assess. I'm curious, too, in the audience, how many people think we test too much in public schools today? <laughs> how, many do you, how many think uh, that it's getting in the way of an actual education? Same, same set. Thank you. All right, um, Greg. Hi, uh, I just wanted to, uh, in, along the lines of asking about standardized testing, uh, I wonder, considering the shady history of standardized testing and it's um, the tons of evidence that there is race and class bias in those kind of tests, why are we so reliant on those tests to determine our rank and determine how our kids are doing? And I also wonder, how would education be different, and how would schools be different if we assumed African-American students are high-achieving students, if we assumed that our Latino students are high-achieving students instead of using the sort of deficit model, um, which seems to me to indicate a, not an achievement gap, but an opportunity gap for these students? I think it's kind of 
a PIP, it's kind of your aspect on PIP, isn't it? Assuming that every student is not only capable of learning, but is in a good position to do so? Yeah, so we believe that all kids can and they will learn. Um, and so with the, we believe in no excuses and no shortcuts. And so we do put a lot of support systems around students, regardless of where they come in at, um, to make sure that they learn. And kind of uh, to what Eric was saying, the growth mindset, I always say it's a not yet. So like you haven't mastered it yet. Um, not that it will not happen. So there's not a, oh, you have not achieved or you can't do this. It's a you have not done it yet. And so kids understand that regardless of where they come in at, that they will get where they need to be. Some people get there faster. Um, some people it takes a little bit longer. Um, and so that just understanding that you're constantly on this trajectory to achievement. Um, so yes, I, I do agree that sometimes it is looked at as a deficit. Um, I think we just have to teach our kids. And I think it also goes to the parent piece too that Heath was talking about. That like parents have to understand that just because their kid came in lower than they were expected to doesn't mean that they're not going to achieve. I think that also helps engage the parent a little bit more when they understand this a yet and not a not at all. And that um, if we all work together, we can get there together. And I, I actually want to, um, that was the second part of your question, ma'am. The first part, too, was talking about um, racial bias in testing. And obviously, the most famous case of that was the SAT. I, I'm curious, is that still something that we're seeing in standardized testing today? Do we still see that bias? I, w I would speak a little bit more holistically to the point, too, that we can't just use the standardized test as a measure, um, that there are a lot of factors that go into seeing whether or not our kids are achieving. Um, there, um, and I think that's where those school report cards, and I know I was on, I sat on one of the task forces to help with the school report card, but where we can look at a school um, holistically and see what they're doing for kids. Are they safe? You know, are they achieving academically? What's going on culturally at the school? All of those different components that make sure that we have really good schools going on. And uh, you could, uh, we really should be sitting together because that's exactly <laughs> where I was going, but I I'm going to look it up in a different way. Um, yes, we're testing too much. There is an appropriate amount of testing, uh, but we are, we've got this fascination and we think a test, you know, you have an app for something, we have a test for everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Encouraged, uh, we've had conversations with the Secretary of Education trying to get him on board with that thinking. We've had some very positive conversations with the governor and I appreciate his thoughtfulness around that issue and his, his speaking out against. Uh, but let's look at what happened in the legislative session. We, we passed a read to achieve, which has some very good components to it, but it's added 30% more time to test. That's not right. Uh, we are now going to be grading our schools based on one measure at one time. And even though everyone up here is advocating around the need to look at growth and to reward growth and to acknowledge growth, 80% of how schools are going to be graded in North Carolina are going to be around proficiency. So schools that start behind and are catching up are going to be deemed failing schools. Schools where students come already at a level of proficiency and maybe aren't getting their students as far and as fast as quickly are going to be A and B schools. Now what's interesting is every piece of data, folks, every piece of data we need to know to grade our schools right now, we just released a couple weeks ago. And yet one of the last decisions made by the legislature was we're not going to release the public scores of the schools until January. At the earliest. At the earliest. Now, riddle me this, Batman. <laughs> if you've got everything you need to know for the grading of schools in October, and if we're so proud, despite everyone saying we need to have more growth to equal the proficiency, why are we making a decision to not release the scores until January? I don't have an answer to that. I'm actually asking our audience. So. I know you've had your hand up for quite a while. 
Good evening. My name is Jessica Contreras, and um, this past June, I had the honor of shaking your hand and receiving my diploma from North Mecklenburg High School. And um, <laughs> I am one of the few immigrant children that actually am able to graduate from high school due to the fact that I had help from an outside source, not from my school. When I went to my counselor to ask for help on scholarships and just in general information to graduate, um, she was unable to give me information on that because I am an undocumented immigrant child. Um, and with the uh, percentage of immigrant children coming in this year, not only in K through fifth or K through eighth, but also as well in high schools, I would like to know what you're going to do uh, to integrate and to inform, to have them be uh, welcomed and prepared to not only graduate, but to make sure they're at the grade level and where they are to needed to be, to be able to be part of the school and not be part of a percentage that drops out of the high school or just in general. Thank you. That's a well, great question. Again, uh, congratulations. <laughs> you know, one of the things I'm very proud of, when, when you say you're about every child every day for a better tomorrow, every child is every child. Uh, we had a number of our undocumented students uh, tell us that uh, they were undocumented, and we actually had a number of our valedictorians, salutatorians this year uh, that were undocumented. Had one young lady from Vance High School who's been very public to let people know that she's undocumented and felt like she got a tremendous education with a lot of support uh, from Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools. Again, as a community, we have to do more. Um, one of the things that we've tried to do is to make sure that uh, we are trying to engage families. Uh, despite cuts around uh, English second language uh, learning that's happened in our state level, we have not cut our services in our schools. We're trying to add to that. Um, we are rapidly expanding a program uh, around professional development uh, to try to help all teachers be, so if we pull students out to teach them English, then they're missing math, science, social studies, so we don't want to pull out, we want to plug in. Uh, so uh, providing the professional development so that all of our teachers can provide uh, plug-in services, another strategy. Uh, we're trying to approach multiple ways to make sure that we're living up to our commitment of every child. Uh, we are seeing an increased number of students uh, coming to our school district not speaking English as a second language. We know we're getting more undocumented students. Now, people always say, well, how many do you have? I don't know because we're not allowed to ask. Mm -hmm. Don't want to ask. Uh, but we want to make sure we're serving every child that we have the honor and privilege of serving. So uh, we, we know we've got to do better. We're pledged to do better, um, and, uh, but very proud of you and uh, proud of our, of our students that we're serving. Um, I actually want to go to Katie here, who has been monitoring our hashtag up there to see if there's any big kind of trend as we're starting to get towards the end here that we're missing. Uh, yeah, I've got a question for you. Um, what role should technology play in the classroom? Ah. Very interesting. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot, Torian, because you had an, an interesting comment as well, but I'd like to hear from everybody on this one. Um, I asked you about textbooks on the phone, and you told me, um, actually, I'll let you say it in your own words, that you think textbooks should. I think that, you know, technology is, it's what we use. I mean, I look around, and every, most people have cell phones. They have iPads. You know, textbooks are kind of an archaic. You said you could throw them out the window. <laughs> Probably shouldn't do that. No. But, um, you know, and I listen to the political ads and <laughs> uh, drop the money on spending on textbook funds. And I'm like, you know, textbooks are a curriculum. It's not. I have yet to find a textbook that's aligned to the standards that I'm expected to teach. So I'm always pulling from sources everywhere else. 
now that the internet is, just has things at your fingertips, it's way more easier to look something up online than to flip through a, an archaic textbook. So do you have the technology you need in the classroom right now to give your second graders the best education they could get? Um, I have an adequate amount of technology. Um, I have a master's in integrating technology in the classroom, so I put a, forth a great effort in doing that. I think that you know, there's a frustration on the teacher level as to not know about the technology, to not be prepared for what we have in our schools. Um, I get frustrated with other teachers. Um, AR was a big thing, and teachers could check off. I use technology because my students take AR tests. And what is AR? Um, accelerated Reader. Right. It's a computer program where you read a book, and then you take a five-question quiz about the story. That's not realistic. I mean, as an adult, you don't read a book and then take a quiz about the story. It's not preparing our students for life and for education. So I think that to get more technology in the classroom should be a priority to get it into the hands of students. But teachers also need to have professional development around technology. They need to be trained to how to use it in 21st century ways, not just like a textbook, but you know, my students use Edmodo, which is like a Facebook that's protected under the, you know, the school setting where they can talk about their, they, every night their homework is to read and to write about what they've read. Well, when they, once I start teaching Edmodo, they can write about it online. And once you see them starting to get comfortable with using it and having discussions and dialogues about the books, it's amazing. But it takes a while to do that. And I'm probably one of two teachers at my school that uses that platform because there's a discomfort there. I think we have time for one more quick question, if there is one. Hi. Uh, my name is Jose Montoya. I'm doing a, a social work at UNCC. And my question is, what has been done about the uh, kind of mental health, I guess, for students, especially when it comes to high school? Like you mentioned, uh, that it's a really good example about uh, your daughter's like you know improving and but it, it's creating an atmosphere of like either you get an A or you're a failure like I've I've had a lot of friends who I've been talking to recently who keep saying it's like you know I, I got a B wow I'm failing I'm doing terrible so what's kind of being done to kind of keep that kind of mental attitude going to in regards of hey you, you can progress you can do better and yeah, you know, getting to a standard is important, but you know, your education overall is more important. I mean, I can, I think it just speaks to the culture of the school. Um, and I think the school leaders have a lot of say in whether or not um, their school speaks the language and has the artifacts within their building that speak to a growth mindset. And once the school leader does that, the teachers do that, the kids do that, the parents do that. Um, and so I would not say I can speak to every single school, more so than to, uh, to the point of the leadership within a school has a lot to do with the mindset and the culture and how people feel and think um, within the building. I actually think your question started around social emotional learning needs, and I'm really interested in that. Um, what I know about the work that we're so honored and blessed to have a privilege of doing is um, all students have social emotional learning needs, all students. Uh, and when those needs aren't addressed, it's really challenging for the best teacher to get a student where we need them to be. Um, for those of us that have gone through educational courses, there's this guy by the name of Maslow. He had this hierarchy of needs, and we learned it for the test. I was a smart guy. Because if you come to school hungry, if you come to school being bullied or harassed, if you come to school and you don't feel that there's a caring adult, 
Uh, if you come to school and you feel like there's a mixed message in terms of, of what you're learning versus what you are being evaluated, all those things can cause immense frustrations in our young people, uh, and, and we're not going to get them where we need them to be. So uh, this past year in our budget cycle, I appreciate our board, county commissioners, we added additional guidance counselors, psychologists, social workers, but we're also dedicating ourselves to embedding social-emotional learning standards into our curriculum helping our teachers, our professionals, our principals be better uh, advocates of social-emotional learning, we absolutely believe will help us in our commitment to educate every child and educate them well. We have a question here. Hi, I really just wanted to make a statement. Uh, I've heard uh, some say that it's the parents' fault or the teachers' fault, but it takes a nation to raise a child. And um, one of the reasons I'm here today is pretty personal. I was elected co-chair of the school leadership team of Harding University High School. Um, my son, Ivy Magnet student, has gone to diverse schools all of his life until now. I decided to stay and not run like the other parents, but the school has fallen apart. The uh, football team, they share uniform. The band, they can't uh, they can't compete because they don't have transportation. Uh, what can we do? It's urgent. Yeah, we just uh, announced an uh, initiative called the Deacon Initiative. Uh, Harding University High School is one of the schools involved in that initiative. Uh, we're looking at a deep dive in terms of where we're at in Harding and where we need to be. Put a brand new principal there and uh, was there visiting, yep, and had, uh, had 15 different teachers come up to say, he's wonderful, please don't move him. So that's what you want to hear as superintendent. Um, you know, we got a lot of work to do there. And, uh, and, and I think that's where uh, we have to make a commitment that every, in our strategic plan, every, we want every school to be a school of choice. Uh, and so we have to acknowledge where we have areas that need to improve. And we have to commit to doing whatever it takes. There's a fierce urgency of now. And so we're really excited about that Beacon Initiative because it's not going to be folks on 600 East 4th Street making decisions. That's what we need to do at Harding. Uh, it really is all in on doing that deep needs assessment and involving the community to create a better atmosphere and a better educational system. It is about allocation of resources and making sure the resources that are spent at the school are being spent well. So a lot of work to do, but I'm really excited. I think we're off to a good start, and I couldn't be happier with Mr. Floyd there. So. And we're not moving them anytime soon, I promise. <laughs> you can hold them to that. We'll make sure. Uh, believe it or not, folks, that is our 90 minutes. We're actually a little over time. So that is going to have to be our last question. <laughs> Big round of applause for our panel, please.